for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky team, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. COVID-19 is the biggest health crisis in our lifetime. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals to stop it, but we need your help. Even if you don't feel sick, you could be carrying it. And just one person with the virus can infect another 40, who then infect thousands more. So I've issued an executive order requiring everyone to stay home to help limit the spread of the virus. Let's protect the people we love. Stay home and stay safe. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into Hour 2 of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour uh, has a new book that talks about uh, drugs and mental health and and other things from a personal uh, perspective. It's called Journey of the Self, Memoir of an Artist by Ruth Ponyarski, and she joins me now by phone. Ruth, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And, and Ruth, did I pronounce your last name right, Ponyarski? Yep, that's it. Well, excellent, because I have a tough time with names. Me too. <laughs> um, so, let's, um, I'm not sure where to begin, if we begin with the story itself, or just uh, how about if we explore a little bit about what made you want to share some things that are very personal details. Oh, yeah, well, it, um, it's a journey, you know, and um, uh, I could say I have been, you know, uh, had problems after um, college, during college, and between the years 1977 and 1987, I had a journey of uh, life-threatening breakdowns, all com- all starting from ingesting angel dust in my fourth year at college, unknowingly, at a party. And I just wanted to share the uh, uh, mental illness with the population and how it could affect one's life and how living through it and really uh, conquering it um, could be a real asset for some people to read because many people do are afflicted with one form or another of mental problems in their life. Um, and uh, that's what I wanted to do, share my story and educate people. And, um, and you say that uh, in college, in your fourth year in college, um, someone, a, a roommate or um, a, a friend or something. A friend, a male friend, a male friend. And it was at a little party. And, and he shared party, angel you know, dust with you. He gave me angel dust. It was baked in a brownie. And... 
I had no idea. The party was not drug infested. It was like a little wine party, a little soda. And at the end of the party, he gave me this brownie, which was laced with angel dust, which is a PCP, a tranquilizer for elephants. And and hence, and it's, henceforth, go ahead. Yeah, henceforth, I hallucinated from the drug, and I developed a psychosis, and it haunted me for the ne- uh, for really uh, many years. Um, and uh, any time a social stress would come up in my life, I would have a life-threatening breakdown. And this drug initiated or uh, instigated what happened to me for the next, you know, number of years. Yeah, uh, let me ask about that, say. because it was, it was the one time you were not a regular drug user. No, no, but I know what happened in my sophomore year at college, um, I smoked marijuana and one night I smoked it so much I blacked out I was like in a comatose for like four hours just blacked out and then ever since then I said no more I went cold turkey I'm not going to smoke marijuana anymore it made me paranoid it made me listless it made me depressed losing my motivation and that lingered on even though I just cut it short and did not take it anymore I had this predisposition at that point when I had taken unknowingly the angel dust. I I was going to ask you about a predisposition because um, you know at first blush it looks like a one-time exposure to this uh, this powerful drug angel dust um, unleashed this this long chain of uh, paranoia uh, anxiety depression and polar issues and, and other things and and I guess the question is was it do you believe that the angel dust was the cause of it you used the word instigated um, or or was it a trigger uh, where were you maybe it was a trigger yeah. were, were you prone yeah. to have mental health issues well as I said I like before I had you know uh, ingested this angel dust I was depressed um, I had returned to college, and my boyfriend did not return that year. And I really was heartbroken. I, I really wanted to spend the rest of my life with him, but he didn't return to college. He, instead, he, uh, he went to college in Sweden, by the way. He took an art, it was an architecture program that we were studying, and he didn't return from Europe. And I was very alone. I was very isolated. And um, I really didn't have any close friendships, so I formed this friendship with this gentleman who who ended up giving me the angel dust, and uh, he wanted to go further in the relationship. I won't really be too explicit, but and I wasn't ready to go further in the relationship with this this uh, man um, who gave me the angel dust. So I I, I had a predisposition and to taking that angel dust and it just it tipped me over and and then um now you describe yourself as as an artist but you were taking an architectural uh uh, you were in an architectural discipline um yes did did any of the issues that you had 
going forward after this exposure to angel dust inform your art um first of all um at that point i wasn't interested in being an artist even though i had a lot of uh talent for that um i in my younger years i was very good in math and geometry and art so i combined it and i said you know i'm going to go into architecture but the architecture program is a very strenuous program. You have to create buildings for projects all the time. Um, it, it, you have to really, you know, uh, synthesize all of, of physics and structure and environmental and climate and all kinds of stuff that goes into designing a building. And it was a very strenuous academic program, curriculum. And uh, I had a hard time going through it because of uh, all that happened with me with the drugs and the relationships and the bad relationships. And it really took a toll. And I really uh, struggled to complete the architecture degree. And after 10 years of being employed in, male do in a male-dominated field without a mentor or a role model, because at that time in the 1970s and 80s, uh, it was a male-dominated field. So that even compounded my situation also. And um, eventually I became, I returned to becoming an artist, I eventually. Uh, after, in 1988, I began painting consecutively. And did you study for that, or did you just... Um begin creating things yourself? I took one art course, painting course in college, and um, but basically I'm self-taught. Uh, I, uh, I always had a, a, bent, uh, a leaning towards painting, and I just developed uh, a style. I developed uh, a story. It gave me, at that point in my life, it gave me purpose, and a, a direction that was not as complicated as architecture. And, and, and I'm looking yeah. at a copy of your book, and, and there are um, a couple of pieces of uh, art, um, one on the uh, back and, and one on the front. I'm assuming that you did the front cover as well. Oh, yeah, those are my paintings, yep. Now, the fortune teller is the one that's on the back. Um, yep. And the uh, the but the one on the front, I don't know if it's identified. Was that yeah, it, it, something it, you did? Well, uh, oh, front cover journey yeah. of the self acrylic on canvas. So, is that something you did um, specifically for the book cover? You know, this is very interesting. I painted this painting in 1990. Okay, I had no idea I was ever going to write a book. And um, I use this image because I'll ex the, the image is a Madonna holding a baby, an old baby with an aged face. And the face is the face of Rembrandt's mother. I, and uh, this is my first surreal painting. This is the grandmother of all the surreal paintings that followed, all my development of style of a surrealistic story. And the meanings behind this is, is uh, a lot of meanings, but the Madonna is holding an old baby, her old self, 
and she sail, she's sailing on a gondola between two worlds, between the moon and the earth. And we all sail between two worlds, and I, I commence the book with a poem called Journey of the Self, and the first line of the book is, I sail between two worlds. And uh, between the place that I know and the one that I fear. So my paintings are very symbolic, and they have, uh, you look into them, you could find a meaning, a poetic meaning. And this was the grandmother of all my surreal paintings to follow. But do you think uh, some of the, um, were you able to use art as a way of grounding yourself while you were going through these various mental health struggles? Uh, yes, it did. Um, I'll tell you, between 1977 again and 1987, I had multitude breakdowns. Um, and then um, in 1987, I married my husband, um, and my life changed at that point. And, um, and then in 1988, I started painting, and it kind of grounded me with my active imagination, and, and it gave me a purpose and a discipline uh, where I would go every single day for like three hours at the same time I would paint. So it did, it grounded me, and it gave me purpose. However, I still, after 1987, I had four breakdowns in the period of like 23 years. So it helped a lot. My marriage helped me a lot. It grounded me. But I still, I still had that psychosis that would flare up, uh, and, and only four times, though. And then since 2010, I've been pretty much clear of all these breakdowns. Uh, do and I'll tell you one thing also, also yeah. I want to mention. It took me around 20-odd years to find the right, right medication, okay? Because back in 1987, 1977 to 87, the medicines for bipolar and schizophrenia were limited. And the medicines really took off and, and developed in the 1990s, 2000s, and later. So it took me from 1977 to about 1990-something to find this medication. And then it took me another 10 years till 2010 to, to find out the right dosage of the medicine. And it's, been a, it's really been a godsend. It's helped me tremendously. The painting and the medication and my lifestyle, all those ele three elements helped me to conquer this psychosis and breakdown. Uh, Ruth, I have to take a break here. Can you stick around for a few minutes so we can uh, sure. talk some more about this? I, I appreciate it. My guest is uh, Ruth Ponyarski. She is the author of a book called Journey of the Self, Memoir of an Artist. We're going to take a short break, let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. Uh, they are WFOV 92.1 FM in Flint. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. Stay tuned.
Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Hi, I'm Dr. Jonay Caldoun. We know that COVID-19 is spreading rapidly across Michigan right now. The most important thing people can do to protect themselves is social distancing. That means unless you are a critical infrastructure worker or going out to get food or medicine for your home, you should be staying at home. Stay home, stay safe, save lives. Most of the music you hear on the Tom Sumner program is provided by local artists. Tune in Fridays at 11 for live music and conversation with some of the area's most talented singers, songwriters, and performers. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe Bai from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. This is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Tom Sumner Program, celebrating the rich talent pool from Flint, Genesee County, and throughout Michigan. In just a little while, you folks are going to have the pleasure not only hearing the songs of the star of the program and all, but you're also going to have the pleasure of hearing and watching and seeing in person the gentlemen and ladies who have been supplying the fine mu- music behind the curtain this evening. It's a wonderful orchestra. I love to hear them play. But, and while you would possibly never even consider counting how many piece- pieces there are in the band, it so happens there are about, I think, 26, 27 members of the orchestra, the stage orchestra here. And the only thing is they used to play in Hollywood. And when they were there in Hollywood, California, there were a 65-piece orchestra. And when they were hired by the International Hotel to come here and play, they all got on a bu- on the bus... All 65 of them with their instruments and everything and headed out for Las Vegas. The only thing was, when they crossed the Nevada state line, they had fruit inspection, and this is all slept. Here are some most happy fellas, the four lads for four. Standing on the corner, watching all the Fords go by. Thunderbirds kissing cousin Get in a Ford Give Ford a try So don't be standing on the 
This is Jill Stein, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome back, everybody. More now with the uh, author of Journey of the Self, Memoir of an Artist, Ruth Poniarski, who joins me by phone. Ruth, thanks for sticking around. Welcome back. Thank you. Um, Just before the break, you were talking about uh, how long it took. Uh, You talked about uh, having some uh, four breakdowns, I think, uh, starting in 1987. Yes. you mentioned uh, that it took about 20 years to find the right for the right drug to come along actually and uh, yep. and, and to settle on the right amount but uh, can can we go back and talk about those breakdowns what what were those like how did they manifest themselves um well if and if i had any social stress um uh and uh I was challenged in my environment. I'm trying to figure out. For instance, um, one of the very big, big breaks that I had, a big breakdown, I was participating in an Earhart training seminar, S group, of the 1970s. But I had signed up for this group, and it was sort of like a psychological workshop where you would uh, learn to be more assertive and emotionally stable. And I thought, wow, this might help me. You know, wow, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to participate. Well, the exercises in the group, I were uh, between members of the workshop, they presented confrontational exercises. And that really tipped me off. I wasn't prepared for that, where you had to confront people in a uh, fictional situation that they created. And I really got overwhelmed. And I was living in my apartment, and um, I didn't return to the program. It was a five-day program. And then uh, I started to decompensate and become very paranoid, very paranoid. And then, unfortunately, the apartment next to me, they were uh, renovating it, so they had these really drilling sounds and uh, the drill and the saw and the electric saw and, and this noise is constant. And I became, I became very paranoid that people were going to kill me. So, and like this was a, a tip-off, and it would just, I would get developed a psychosis, and then I wouldn't sleep. And then not sleeping compounded the psychosis. I went seven days without sleep. So uh, that's one of the breakdowns. And when you have a breakdown like that, um, how does it, how does it end? Is there a moment when you realize that you need help to make it stop, or are you able to take retake control of yourself? Well, what happened with that that breakdown? I I uh, I had uh, an accident. I don't want to go into it because it's in the book, but I had an accident, and I went to my I I was seeing a psychiatrist for. From 1977 to 1987, I was seeing this, uh, to 1984, excuse me, I was seeing this psychiatrist, and he was very negligent in a way. I went to him, I said, look, I'm not getting any, I didn't even tell him I got any sleep. It was like a, I didn't communicate to him, but he could see that I was disheveled and I didn't sleep, and he just uh, said, take a little more of this medication, 
and it just compounded itself, and I had an accident. And um, and then after that, I was in the hospital, and I was in the hospital for a month, recovering from this accident, and then I went to rehab for another month. So being hospitalized and taking medicine and, and not a threat to myself anymore, I kind of like got out of my psychosis eventually. It took like two weeks to get out of this mindset and sleeplessness. And that's what happened periodically during those years. I would, from a social stress, I would develop a psychosis and it would compound it by no sleep. Sleep, to me, is the most important element in life. You have to get between seven and nine hours of sleep. This is my belief, my, uh, my exercise belief, that you, the sleep is so important. And I monitor myself. I'm, now, to this day, I watch it, that I get my sleep, and I take uh, the right medication, and I'm been, I've been able to come out of this patterns of psychosis did you go through a period uh ruth of um like so many people do that that struggle with uh with mental health of trying to self-medicate with drugs or alcohol oh no no after after that incident with the angel dust um no not at all nope never if i would have a drink it would be occasional wine um, but no, no drugs. I stayed away from marijuana. I was very afraid of what would happen. To this day, I'm afraid of that. Um, it could really send me into it. If I had indulged in that, it would send me into a spiral of, of psychosis. So I really stayed away from that. Um, and I might add also... From 1977 to 1984, I had this one psychiatrist who really was not prepared to um, have ther- give therapy to a high-risk patient, which I was. And he wasn't, he didn't have, he didn't give me any common sense uh, in life. He, he was a more of like a Freudian kind of uh, psychiatrist where he wouldn't say anything or offer any information during our sessions. He would just let me talk. And uh, it really was not that effective until my accident in 1984. And then I found another psychiatrist, George, and he was a Quaker, and he was full of common sense. He would offer a lot of uh, common sense in our sessions. He wrote papers on how to eat the right food, how to sleep, how to invest properly in your money, uh, all kinds of like self-help sheets. And my life really turned around from, from that moment. When, that did moment you, on. when did you meet your husband? I met him in 1987. He had just uh, came back from Italy. He was he studied medicine at the University of Bologna, like his father, and he had come back, and I met him through a dating service, and uh, uh, I told him everything about myself, and uh, it didn't faze him. We went out for like a month, and then he asked me to marry him, and we've been married to 32 years. 
Wow. So, well, congratulations yeah. on that. Um, were you... Um, were you able to, were you working? Were you, have you worked throughout this? Have you? Um, oh, yes. I worked. I, I finished my architecture degree. Um, painfully, I finished it. I worked. I had jobs, but my jobs, I really could, for a number of years, I really couldn't uh, hold on to a job uh, and grow in it, grow in it. I, I was oh, I was stagnant in my growth in my employment and then uh in about 1986 1987 um i designed a uh interior office for my father um for his business and then i also uh had a job at an interior designer where i designed a lingerie store and then also my parents moved to another house so i Designed the kitchen for them and the and the deck and the dining room area, so I did have a little bit of success, but uh, not. I didn't really have that much growth in in my employment, and as I said, it was male dominated at the time, and I did not have a mentor, which did, would have made a world of difference. Did your parents know what you were going through? Oh, absolutely, they knew it, but they had they didn't know what to do. They, they they couldn't, they just were lost, and they slept in their clothes for years not knowing what was going to happen to me. Um, and uh, my father was there. He always picked up the pieces for me a little bit after a breakdown. But uh, they had, they really uh, were not really included in the therapy for the first seven years, which was a very big mistake because the doctor, the first psychiatrist that I had, he always stressed I have to develop a, uh, a support system outside of my parents. I was too dependent on them. And uh, that kind of uh, almost, I was semi-alienated from them uh, in those first seven years. And then after that major league accident and I found George, the first session he included my parents. We talked for an hour. We reviewed my life up until that point, everything from birth to the accident. And he included my parents once a month. My parents would come, and we would have a joint therapy session. So he really included my family. And my brother, every once in a while, would come. He was in the Army, my brother. So when he would ha have a leave, he would come in, and he would also meet with George. So my this psychiatrist really changed the momentum of my therapy. You know, you, you've, we've talked a couple times about finding the right medication and getting the right um, dosage and so on. Um, does it, do you think you have, uh, that, that you have and maybe always have had a chemical imbalance that was uh, exacerbated by your drug experience uh, with marijuana and again with uh, angel dust? Um, yeah, I think, you know, I was, I was really not, I didn't have a passion in my life. Uh, like, I didn't have a real cause or passion uh, developed uh, before my breaks, and uh, I was kind of uh, floundering for for um, 
uh, a direction. Was it because you and you I was hadn't found? And I was, is it because you hadn't found something um, that awakened your passion, or were you, I don't know, unable to have passion? At that point, I, I was unable to have have a passion and have a direction. And let me tell you, it was the post-Vietnam era, and a lot of my generation uh, didn't have a, a, a discipline or a direction or um, a serious direction or, or passion or goal. goal. I, I, I didn't set goals for myself. I, I just was floundering. And so when, I, when these drugs came along, uh, it just compounded my sense of uh, goallessnessness. For, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, for a lot of us from that era, we're still growing up. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yes. What was... What was the moment like when you decided to write the book? Okay. The moment, okay. It's really interesting. I I started, I think, in like 2000, I don't know, was it 2010 or 2011 or something? I just started writing and, and I, you know, when I, writing is really hard. I think it's really, really difficult. And when I first started writing, I always said, oh, I can't do this. I got so, I can't do this. I, I was like, I was telling myself I can't do this. Well, after a number of months, or maybe half a year, I said, yes, I can do this. <laughs> I can complete this, you know? So I wrote, and uh, it took me a while. And I wrote about 440 pages. And, and it took me a long time to find a publisher. And, and then editing took a while. And I cut my book in half. And I just covered 10 years as opposed to covering from my birth to 1987. And I uh, did a lot, a lot of editing. A lot of editing. And, but I also, though, what I developed, I said, Wow. I can look at myself as if I'm divorced from myself and look at the pattern that I had gone through and broken. So the the, the journey of the self, the, the writing of it and the completion of it and the final editing of it, I said, wow, I can just look at myself and divorce myself from myself and see myself. I don't know if you can get that. <laughs> yeah, I, and it, it, it makes me wonder. I, I, I talk to a lot of writers, but typically they're writing fiction and uh, thrillers and, and high fantasy novel. They have all these genres that they write, and we talk about editing. But I don't know that I've ever really asked this. Um, when you're writing something that's, that's very, very personal, like this story is, um, what's the relationship like with an editor? And how did you, going through the editing process, how much of the editing process ended up being uh, a, a journey of discovery in and of itself? Going through the editing process 
made me even more aware and conscious of how to write and how to express oneself and how to really develop uh, a, the, uh, the realistic theme. Um, and I'll tell you something. The, the book was originally 440 pages, and uh, the one editor said to me, you have to rewrite the book. She says it reads too much like an autobiography. You want to write a memoir. A memoir is a little different than an autobiography. So I said to myself, yep, I'm going to start in 1977, my first break. I start that in the book, and I rewrote the book, and it took me another four or five months to rewrite the book. Um, but the editor, you know, uh, really got a grip of the themes in the book, the the heavy themes in the book, even though it's it's written in a light kind of airy kind of verbiage, but the themes are heavy. And the editor really caught on to it and uh, had a good editor, very good editor. Well, that's, Im- that's important. How did your art, um, how was your art impacted through these various episodes and over the course of the last several years? Um, Are you still painting? Yeah, I'm still painting, and I'm also, and I'm, I'm writing also. I'm writing a fiction book now. Um, I'm also painting. Yeah, uh, a little. It's a little slower now uh, with the painting because I'm also writing. When, um, before you were able to sort of get control of yourself, um, was was the art very different from that that you create now? Oh, no, no, no. The language is still there. I developed a language of animals and people and stories and and uh, moonla- moonlight uh, uh, experiences on the canvas. Um, no, it's just the, st- uh, it's, the style is there. Um, I've kept my style, and uh, I just develop stories. Does, and, does, uh, your, does your art exist in a, in a world that... Um, is separate from your reality? Um, Do you know what I mean by that? Know. That's kind of an awkward way to ask it. Um, yeah, it's like a, it's a, a dream world kind of thing, you know? Um, but also, uh, there's some, uh, some reality in it. Um, I'll give you an example of a painting I did in the 1998-2000. It's called The Affair. And it's in the bedroom, and the woman is on the on the bed. It's almost like a Rembrandt painting. She's on the computer, and um, uh, and I call it the affair. So she's having an affair on the computer, and at that time, a lot of people were having affairs on the computer. So it's kind of like it takes from reality, and it makes it poetic. You know what I mean? Art imitating life. Art, yes, and then I have another painting called, um, uh, what do I call it, um, Rip Van Winkle's Wife, <laughs> where she's on, on the bed, and there's a dog by, this, by her side, Oreo, my dog, and slippers, and, there's, and then the, the wall is split between the, the sky above and a dark room below. So she's been there for many, she's his wife, she's slept for many many years 
So it also derives uh, a lot of paintings from literature and mythology and from um, really influenced by the classic uh, Henri Rousseau and Magritte with the surreal. I kind of mix-match it all together, and I come up with these paintings. But they derive from life and from literature a lot. So The book is... Uh, and then I have another... I have another example, too, like uh, I did a painting called Transformation. Uh, the thinker, I, the thinker is in the forest, and I really paint him as a really shiny bronze. And then there's a fox that comes along in the forest and starts to sniff his foot, and the foot becomes flesh. So it's kind of based on poet. It's poetry. You know Interesting. What I mean? Yeah, I do. Uh, the book is called Journey of the Self, Memoir of an Artist by Ruth Ponyarski. Ruth, who do you hope reads this book, and, and what would you like to see them get out of it? Oh, I think a lot of people can read the book. I think students at college should definitely read the book because it just it communicates what and what not to do in your life. <laughs> it communicates develop a common sense in your life and to go and to set goals which people sometimes don't consciously do and then it gives you the opportunity to see a, a person myself going through this and coming out through the other end it gives parents an idea of what their child may be going through but they can't really get their grip on what they're going through it could appeal to our generation, uh, the, the Vietnam generation, uh, and, and what happened at that period of time. Uh, and it could appeal to a lot of generations. But most important, I think students should read it. Students in college, and, and it should be a, a book in college. Well, Ruth, we're, we're pretty much out of time, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more um, about uh, about the book and about your art and, and you. Uh, do you have a website? Absolutely, I do. Oh, yeah, on there you can order the book. You can see artwork, a couple of poems are on the. My paintings have poems to them also. I developed that a after writing. So you can see that. I have that poem. The, the thinker is on my site. In the, with the fox, and there's a beautiful poem, poem called Transformation, and it's all on my site, on my website. So, want me to give you my website? Yeah, please. Okay, it's www.ruthponyarski, I'll spell that, R-U-T-H-P-O-N-I-A-R-S-K-I.com, just my name, .com. Well, Ruth, thank you so much for sharing your... Uh your life with us uh, this morning. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye now. Bye. name of the book is Journey of the Self, Memoir of an Artist, written by Ruth Ponyarski, uh, talking about struggling with uh, extreme anxiety, paranoia, hallucinations, uh, and, uh, and trying to overcome those things. We're going to take a short break, and... Uh, We'll be back with more of the Tom Sumner program coming up a little later on the show. We'll talk with author Len Joy, the uh, author of a novel called Everyone Dies Famous. Anyway, 
Don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse. We'll be back with more right after this. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. Is a major factor in dancing like a retard. May cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy, and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the best. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. The interest of goodwill. The Hoffman Beverage Company feels compelled to make this announcement. It's simply this. All Hoffman flavors have that happy taste, except sarsaparilla. We might as well come right out with it. We haven't quite hit that happy, carefree note in sarsaparilla. Now, please don't misunderstand us. Our Hoffman sarsaparilla is absolutely dependable. It's trustworthy. It's loyal. And many fine, upstanding citizens love it. But it just isn't what we call happy. You take our Hoffman orange. It's absolutely rollicking. Our lemon is almost giggly. 
Our black cherry and black raspberry are so bubbling with happiness, they dance in the glass. They all have natural flavor and famous Hoffman study sparkle. We're sorry about Hoffman's sarsaparilla. Why isn't it happy? Well, let me ask you, could you be happy if your name were This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. This presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Well, Bill, how are you feeling? Well, I have to look first. <laughs> I'm feeling fine, Don. Valiant me back to old Virginia. Wait a minute, Bill. Wait a minute. What is that uh, valiant me back to old Virginia? I'm thinking of Gladys George, Don. Yeah. Valiant is the word for courage. Oh, I see. Valiant me back to old Virginia. Down on the hoe, ho uh, Bill, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I get the idea. Uh, I'd like to bust the guy that knows told me. That was funny. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bill. And speaking of courage, Don, I'm getting rid of a great load today, and I don't mean two quarts either. <laughs> I'm going to take a vacation, Don. You're going to... Is that so, Bill? You mean you're going to leave us? Oh, for the nods, yes. This radio rocket has got me down. Last Sunday, I had a recurrence of my double vision, Don. Is that so, Bill? Yeah. Saw two of Mishis. <laughs> that wasn't bad enough. Yeah, what happened then? Then I saw two McCarthy. <laughs> it was too much. That guy is a thorn, a splinter in my side. I'm going out to the woods and forget. Well, say, I'm sorry to hear that you're leaving us, Bill. Oh, you begrudge me a few weeks commuting with Mother Nature, eh? <laughs> Listening to the twitter of the birds and the stinging of the bees. No, 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 Bill, I don't mean that at all. Of the howling of the bloodhounds. How those bloodhounds get into one's blood, Don. <laughs> guess that's why they call them bloodhounds, eh? Yeah, I guess that's right. But, Bill, I, I didn't really uh, mean the that... the baby rattlesnakes playing with their mother's rattle. <laughs> Very beautiful, Don. The way nature provides those snakes with the little toys. You know, Don, the mom of a rattlesnake, what, you know what she feeds her young? No, and I don't care. Ah, oh, you never drank rattlesnake milk, eh? No, no, Bill. You want to get rid of me, eh? No, no, Bill, I don't. For nine weeks you have been avid in your anticipation of my departure. And not until now do you show your ugly teeth. Oh, now, Bill, please. Maybe I shouldn't say ugly teeth, Don, after knowing what you paid for them. <laughs> Do you think they rooked you? <laughs> I wonder what they'd allow me on a trade-in for some of mine. <laughs> Look, though, Bill, you, you've got me all wrong. I, I want you to do what you want to do. Uh, arguments at every turn. And what's more, you never let me say a word about my friends at Paramount. Now, Bill. Eat up Zucker. Now, Bill, please. Or Jason Sandbar. Now, Bill, Bill, wait, you wait. You see, you're rushing me. Oh, Bill. Gregory LaCordova, Al Jolson, Fred Allen. There, I got him in. All right. Uh... Bill, look, if you stay around, you can say all you want to about anybody you please. Now, how's that? Ah, you close the door after the horse is gone. What horse? You know what horse. The one in the third race. <laughs> you bet on him. <laughs> anyway, it's too late now. There's too much argument around here. 
thing you and Bergen don't understand is that we radio people are temperamental, very sensitive. We radio people, Bill. Yeah. You've only been on the air a couple of months. Ah, that's right, too. <laughs> Seems like years and years. Anyhow, I'm going for a vacation far away from insults hurled at me by that little rat, Charlie McCarthy. <laughs> oh, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, Bill. Here's your nemesis, Charlie McCarthy. Hello, Mr. Fields. I heard you tell Mr. Michi you're going away on a vacation, huh? Well, do you want to make anything out of it? No. No, Mr. Fields, but can I ask you where you're going? Yes, you can. Go ahead and ask him, Charlie. All right, I will. Where are you going? I'm going far away, far from the maddening crowd, far from the horse car, and the crack of the driver's whip. Crack! Get up there, Mike. Get old Maghorn. Was I happy when gasoline took the place of oats? Those were the happy days. When the attendant would say, how many bushels? <laughs> what kind of cracked corn? Shall I look at a shoe? Then look at me and then at the horse and say, is the tank full? I remember, Charles. I remember you to all your relatives. I love the woods, Mr. Fields. Who cares? <laughs> Will you take me with you, Mr. Fields? What, take a sandwich to a picnic? Oh. <laughs> On second thought, I may take you, my diminutive little chum. <laughs> If I run out of matches, you can rub your hands together and start a fire. Oh, then you will take me, won't you, Mr. Fields? Can I sleep in the pup tent? No, my pup tent is very small. I use it to cover my dogs. Oh. Pup tent, dogs, meaning feet. Remarkable. Yeah. <laughs> And after dinner, Charles, you can take a nap in the fireplace and keep us both warm. <laughs> the evenings will be cool. Uh, Bill, you know, Charlie is already threatened to go on strike. Uh, picket in the fence factory, eh? Oh. I killed that one for him. Say, Bill, <laughs> do you expect to do any fishing while you're away? Tom, I had a very unhappy experience while fishing once, an experience I shall never forget. Well, what was that, Bill? I shall never forget it. Yeah, well, what was it, Bill? I can't remember just now. <laughs> But I know it was an experience I shall never forget. Oh, I see. Uh, it comes back to me as though a dream. I was out in the woods doing a little fishing up at Lake Titicaca. What? Just a lake. I caught a little fish. Yeah, go on, A minnow. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. I looked at the little fellow's face. There was a tear in his sad, bleary eyes. It may have been a dewdrop. Yes, Dew Bill. Dewdrop, yes. Yes. But when I released him from the hook, he showed his gratitude. Oh, he was glad to get off the hook, huh? Aren't we all? <laughs> he wagged his little tail, gambled on the green, and sang, and tomorrow will be Friday. Yeah, I know. The fish was a crooner, huh? He went boo-boo-boo, boo-boo-boo. Before you ate him and after you ate him, he went boo-boo twice. <laughs> Thing like this and people like you that drive people like me to places where I'm going. Is Mr. Fields, are, are yeah. you eating a tomato or is that your nose? <laughs> <laughs> that's a comical, that's a comical. Keep quiet. Right. Stop scratching yourself. <laughs> You'll get sawdust all over the floor. <laughs> Make this place look like a bar room in a minute. <laughs> if you must scratch yourself, keep walking around that cospidor over there. Bill, look, though, what about that fish you caught? Oh, yes, thanks, Don. I almost forgot about it. I took the little sick fish home. I know, in a bucket of well water. Get it? <laughs> Very 
Striker, Charles Striker. <laughs> Sick fish, well water. Yes. Very good, excellent. I like titles. Yeah. And then I began a startling scientific experiment in advanced ichthyology, meaning the study of fish, Don. Yeah, I know, Bill. Anything you don't understand, I'll only be too pleased to explain. Yeah, I, I know ichthyology is a study of fish, Bill. Go By ahead. removing a cup full of water from the bucket each day, I ultimately got the fish to live without any water at all. In fact, at the completion of my experiment, the fish could not hardly drink water. I had to feed him out of a bottle, a little water on the side. <laughs> Did the fish get drunk, Mr. Fields? Uh, don't leave that kid out in the rain so much. The brain is warm. <laughs> The little fish would then follow me around like a dog. One day I was out in the woods hunting. What were you hunting, Mr. Fields? Uh, we were shooting camels oh. for camel hair coats. <laughs> I finally turned around and Mrs. Little Finsteps behind me. Finsteps. I heard a splash in the brook beside me. I immediately removed my habiliband, my alpaca coat, my pale green trousers, my pig top hat. Yeah, I, I know, Bill, your habiliband. Uh, my socks and garters with gold initials on them and engraved. With love to dear William from Minnie. Minnie who? Minnie, ha ha. <laughs> I won't tell you. <laughs> anyway, Bill, you heard a splash, and then what happened? I can't help thinking of that last one, that Minnie, ha ha. <laughs> yeah, you heard a splash. Yeah, oh, yes, I heard a splash. I wheeled around pronto. And to my great dismay, I found that. I know, the fish fell in a brook and was drowned. <laughs> <laughs> Featured the punch that time, Bill. Uh, nothing of the kind. That isn't the answer. A dog had treed my little fish. Oh, wait a, wait a minute, Bill. You mean a dog had treed your fish? Oh, yes, Don, I forgot to tell you. It was a catfish. All right, all right, continue, Bill. Yeah. I'm sorry we mentioned that. Uh, he later flew into a flying fish. We flew across the Andes together. Amos and Andes, you mean? Mr. Fields, when you're away, you're going to send us a postcard? No, I'll send you some termites. <laughs> I want a postcard. That's, I like postcards better. Yeah, you get termites just the same. Uh, do you expect to bring anything back alive, Mr. Fields? Plenty. <laughs> if you've ever been camping, you know what I mean. <laughs> Take care of Charles. I'll do my best, Bill. I'm going to start a savings account for little Charlie. Oh, a little shavings account, yeah. eh? <laughs> very subtle, very subtle. <laughs> good, oh. Mr. Fields, if, yeah? can, I, can I ask you, if, if, before you go on yeah. a vacation, can I ask you a little favor? Sure. is it long? Mm, no, Mr. Fields, I just want to know, would you like to kiss me goodbye? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great idea, Bill. Go on, go on, before you start fighting again. Kiss Charlie and make up. Yeah. I've been picking my teeth with better wood than him for years. <laughs> I'd rather be kissed by a baseball bat. <laughs> I have dedicated this little poem to this momentous occasion. Farewell, goodbye, my little chum. Hello, soon shall say. Hello, Bill. Oh, oh, what fun is going coming. Yes, Bill, yeah, yeah. And going coming, too. The choo-choo train goes woo-woo-wooing. Woo-woo-wooing. Ah, evidently written by a Chinaman. <laughs> and so, kind friends, it is. Well, we've all been looking forward to reporting to your vacation, Bill. So long, and thank you very much, WC Field. 
This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.